Have you ever sat through a Relief Society lesson? Heard an inspirational story about a woman who was born decades or even centuries before you? Then wondered how in the world could her life possibly be relevant to yours? Well, that's what this podcast is all about. You'll hear parts of some prominent talks given by women throughout the history of the church. Hopefully, along the way, you'll be able to see how their experiences can apply to you. Welcome to the Latter-day Saint Women Podcast. I'm your host, Shaylin Back, and today we have two special guests with us. First is Lisa Tate, who's a historian, writer, and specialist in women's history. Thanks for joining us, Lisa. Thank you. And we also have Katie Perez, who has study this discourse and is ready to share her thoughts and perspectives about it. So we're so glad to have you guys. The discourse that we're talking about today, it's from the book At the Pulpit, which is a compilation of talks and addresses given by Latter-day Saint women throughout the history of the Restoration. And today's is the religious crisis of today. First of all, before we talk about this discourse, we just want to know a little bit more about Elsie Talmadge Branley. Lisa, can you provide a little bit more about her story for you us. Bet. She's one of my favorite people that I have come to know through the work that I've done on the history of the young women. You may recognize the middle name, Talmadge, her maiden name. She was the daughter of Elder James E. Talmadge and his wife, uh, May. She was born in 1896, and she was just a brilliant, brilliant person. She had a real gift with language and with writing, and she graduated with a a degree from BYU in 1917 and and got married shortly after that. And in the 1920s, she was called to serve on the Young Ladies Mutual Improvement Association, (laughs) YLMIA, General Board, and she quickly became editor of their magazine, which was called the Young Women's Journal at that time. And then in 1929, when that magazine merged with the Improvement Era, which was at the time had been the magazine of the Young Men's Organization, those two magazines merged and she became associate editor and did a lot of writing and and work in the magazine. So her name and her voice were well known among members of the church in the 1920s and early 1930s. She had seven daughters, including a set of twins, and then... Unfortunately, tragically, she died in 1935, just shy of her 39th birthday of pneumonia. She, you know, I don't know all of the details, but it was in the time before antibiotics, and she did go to the hospital, but apparently it was too late, and she passed away. Her youngest daughter was only four years old at the time, and it was just a a thunderclap. Everyone who knew her was just shocked and... um, there was this outpouring of tributes and memorials to her. And that was just a year after she gave this yes, talk. Yes, it was. As a member of the, the YLMIA general board, she spoke in what was called June Conference. There was a big annual conference of, they called it the MIA, every June during this period. It was almost as big as general conference. Thousands and thousands of young people and leaders would come into Salt Lake and they would have days of workshops and training and discuss the the plans and the program for the upcoming year. They had contests and later dance festivals and drama festivals and things like that. So it was a really big celebration of the young people of the church and an opportunity for the leaders to come together 
And you can hear that in Elsie's talk here, that she's really speaking to the leaders, and there's this sense of camaraderie and and unity of purpose among the leaders. What I think is interesting is that here she's giving this talk in the 1930s. So from her perspective of the restored gospel, she's looking back 100 years. And now for us, it's been 100 years since she gave this talk, and so she's kind of right in in the middle for us. And so I thought that was kind of a neat perspective. But she talks about at this time, there's a moral, political, and economic crisis. And so what's what's going on at the time? What are these crises that are happening that she's speaking of? Well, if you look back, the 1920s and 1930s are a point where Latter-day Saints really confronted what we call modernity head-on. They had this sense that they were living in an entirely new world. You can see that in some of the comments that Elsie makes here about the almost frightening problems of a new day. The adults are lagging behind the kids. There's a new way of life, new system. And if you think about it, the adults of this time had lived through this incredible transformation from literally the days of horse and buggy and coal oil lanterns to modern houses and automobiles and airplanes and all of the technology and the advances in medicine and science that were just coming almost on a daily basis and at a breakneck speed. And one of the effects of all of this change was to cause people to question traditional assumptions, including religion. And just like we see today, there was this narrative that sprung up that, well, in this modern, sophisticated, scientific age, these old-fashioned religious beliefs are just out of place and are not tenable anymore. So this is the this is what they mean by the religious crisis. It was how do we maintain spirituality and a commitment to the church, to religion in general, in a world that seems to be so secular and modern and new and different. So what you were just talking about sounds like today. I feel like this talk for me was very relevant, except there was one part when she was talking about books and she was just saying how imagine the types of things that our youth are reading and I was like okay now we can add quite a bit to that you know imagine what they're being bombarded with today that's so easily accessible so terribly confusing and I know that she directs this address to leaders of the youth but as Mm -hmm. I was reading it I was relating to my own questions that I have I was relating to the fact that I can be a support for friends and as a sibling, as a spouse, sure. you know, as a, as a parent, like all of these, all of these things were very relatable to me. Sure. She, it's not that different though. Books, yes, magazines, but think about it. There was radio, there were movies, the, the print culture was everywhere. So it wasn't the electronic media that we have today that's literally in the palm of our hands, but we shouldn't underestimate how much was available to people and especially how that seemed kind of new maybe to older people, the proliferation of, of sources of information for that, that they saw the young people confronting. It is very much like today. And we may not realize this, but the, in the post-World War I era, so from about the late 19-teens into the early 1930s, there really was a cultural revolution that was on the magnitude of what we think of as the 1960s. There was 
a huge change in standards and practices and ideas about everything from dress and music and dating and automobiles. There, there really was a profound cultural revolution in that period that we think of as an old-fashioned time. That's a good point. I'm glad you said that because I, what they had, you know, you mentioned like the books and radio and things like that. That sounds so far from us. Right. But we can easily relate to that with with our new technology. They were experiencing that same new technology. So I appreciate you giving that thought. Something that I love is that she is encouraging youth to ask questions. And I mean, we can say people in general to ask questions, you know, members of, of the church. And she's kind of teaching the people in the audience how to react to those questions. And I think that that's such an, a neat thing. She says that we as parents and leaders provide and administer education. And education teaches youth to explore, to experiment, to try new ways and find new paths. Is it consistent to resent what is found in these educational journeys? So she's basically saying you can't push youth to grow and learn and then say, wait, you're learning too much. You're growing too far. <laughs> Come <Right>. back. <laughs> right. This is the period when high school becomes standard. So their kids are getting more education than had ever been available to people before. And she's, I think, recognizing the implications of that. One quote that I really loved um, is when it said, mature leadership cannot afford to remain apart, aloof, waiting at a gate for youth to return from their explorations. We must go with them and learn what they learn and see what they see. So one thing I thought is like how, how you said as friends or parents or leaders, how can we you know, help the youth and be there for them more and relate to them more. Yeah, she's not just saying here that it's okay for people to question. She's saying adults need to let young people question, Mm -hmm. that we shouldn't be threatened and shut down the natural questioning and curiosity and the need for young people to come to knowledge and faith and, and testimony on their own. But as she says, we need to go with them. And she emphasizes in here a lot listening, Mm -hmm. listening to youth, listen to what they have to say. And I don't think that's too different, right? That's still, that's that's what we need to do. That's what young people need. It's what everybody needs, Mm -hmm. someone to listen and to not, not to be judging. And while we're supposedly listening, just be thinking about, well, what can I say to to refute what they're saying or what can I say to answer their questions or whatever, but just to listen and understand what the questions are. She also gives this story. I I actually really like this story. She says a party of geologists were um, crossing a loose shale deposit on a steep incline and the shale started (laughs) slipping. So most of the people, they were okay. They got to the other, the other side of the hill, but there was one man saw that the sliding rock was, he, he was in trouble. Mm-hmm. And so he reached for, um, he saw the trunk of an old tree. And as he reached for this stump, he was able to just hold on while the rest, the whole deposit just passed him by. And so he knew that that tree was going to be stable because it was firmly rooted in spite of that shifting surface rock. And so I just love how she related this to the gospel, meaning that there are certain roots of the gospel. She said, Jesus is the Christ. Joseph Smith restored the gospel. We have modern prophets who receive revelation for us. And she said, those are the roots that we need to cling to as we explore these, yeah. these other things. And, and, and the to, scriptures. She and, mentions yes, the scriptures. and the scriptures, of course. Yes, thank you. Well, there's another quote that I really like. It said, do we strive to discover how far we leaders and parents might be lagging behind youth? 
instead of trying to measure how far they are getting away from us. And so I liked just the different approach on that, that maybe they're not the problem, you know, and try to focus on like, what are we doing? Are we far behind? Yeah. One thing that's really interesting in this talk and in this time period is that you see the adults speaking really positively about the young people. There's this sense that there's a crisis going on in the world, but at the same time, they really feel like the young people are leading out, leading their way into the future, and that the the young people have a lot to teach the older people in the way that they're embracing change and they're making their way in this in this new world. And you know, it's a it's a different tone than than what we sometimes take when in talking about the kids and all their problems <laughs> and everything we're worried about with the kids and so forth. I think it's kind of instructive. And I think it's interesting to to notice that tone uh, in her talk and in other things during this time period of profound concern and profound change, and yet they met it with optimism, hope for the future, because they saw that the the kids were going to be okay. Yeah, and they were excited about what they would learn, whereas now I think people are kind of frustrated by, by the questioning, and they might be frustrated because they already know the answers, or Mm. they can point to examples that that have that answer. But the important thing is, is to support the youth in finding that for themselves, for which themselves. I don't think that we do. So she does say, youth must ask in order to find answers. Youth must analyze and harmonize. Their very eagerness to do so is indicative of their interest. Indifferent passiveness would be death, but this intensity is life. Youth must be converted personally. Only on the strength of a converted youth can this church realize its high and glorious destiny. And I thought that was such an amazing thing that you know, I think a lot of people need to shift their perspectives on that. But then she shares, on the other hand, youth must admit to the fact that it accepts much without criticism and doubt. So I think there's a difference mm-hmm. between being critical and doubting and asking questions and searching because she says, fruit is eaten without knowing botany. Stars are loved in ignorance of astronomy. Telegrams are sent. I mean, we could change that with texts and emails mm-hmm. and everything. <laughs> right. Um, with no knowledge of the Morse code. Okay, Morse code doesn't. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> Love and friendship, home and books, and nature become dear and of great value with little attempt to explain technical reasons. Let us not encourage youth to segregate religion as the only phase of life upon which to concentrate doubtful in- inquiry. Let us help them to see that they accept certain conditions with no stronger proof of their doing so than that they provide joy and hope and faith and courage. So she asks, can they not accept religion up to a certain point with the same composure? So on one hand, we do need to realize the hope and joy that the gospel brings and that, you know, we can ask questions while we're having that joy and we don't have to be experts Mm -hmm. and that we have the rest of our lives to Mm -hmm. get more answers. And that's a, that passage is a beautiful example of her writing and her voice. Yeah, I loved it. I really did have to keep kind of reminding myself, this was a hundred years ago and it's so (laughs) relevant to today. I I love her too. This was exciting. In this talk, Elsie quotes from another author in a way that I think resonates for us today. Let me just read a quote here from, uh, she attributes it to an author named Glenn Frank. He talks about how the will to believe has given us great saints. The will to doubt has given us our great scientists. And he says, neither alone makes a whole man. A merely blind faith gives us a soft saint. A merely blind doubt gives us a hard scientist. Humanity owes much to the saint and much to the scientist, but humanity would fare badly if the world were peopled solely by saints 
with a blind faith or by scientists with a blind doubt. And then he goes on to say, we must act in the light of the best we know at any given moment, but we must be willing to hold our beliefs open to revision in the light of new facts. Thus can we combine saint and scientist. And so often, and I think our kids really get this message a lot, that it's either science or religion, that it's one or the other, and you can't have faith if you believe in science and vice versa. And I, I think she's pointing out here, and it's absolutely true, that all truth can be incorporated into both science and faith, and that, that those two are not necessarily polar opposites. And we would do well to help our young people to understand that and to see that and to help walk them and guide them through working through those kind of false dichotomies. Well, and we do keep saying youth, but as we're talking, I also <laughs> keep forgetting that she's talking to leaders for youth because I yeah. am thinking about other people in my life that aren't youth that are having these same kind of questions and going through the same kind of thing. And I think that's just a generational thing. Well, and at this time, actually, MIA membership included people up to the age of 35. And so MIA, the youth, is construed very broadly here. And then a lot of the leaders were themselves quite young people. So you do have a really interesting multi-generational but, um, thing going on here, but a broad construal of youth. I'm glad you shared that. That's helpful to understand that, too. During this time that MIA was this huge program that had specifically been given the assignment by the general authorities of being the recreational arm of the church. And so the focus was on activities like drama and dance and music and uh, things. Sports was beginning to be a big thing. And then in the 1930s, and I think it was a response to this sense of, of crisis at the time, some of the leaders of the church began to feel like maybe we're going a little too far in that secular direction. Maybe the emphasis on, on recreation needs to be pulled back a little bit, and we need to remember that whatever the activities are in the MIA, the focus needs to be on building faith, on building testimony. And so the MIA continues to still be a, a big, massive recreational program after this point, but this is also a moment of kind of reorienting to make sure that there's a spiritual focus for everything that, that they do and recognizing that all of these great activity programs aren't all that meaningful if the young people don't come away with faith and with testimonies. And you can see Elsie speaking to that concern as well in this talk. She also says with every passing generation, the focus is of the world shift. And so the mm -hmm. focus is of, you know, the church can shift too because answers change with changing problems. When some problems give way to others and, and the times just change, there's things that change. And so she says, believe not those who assert that the gospel of Jesus Christ is in any way opposed to progress or inconsistent with advancement. So in understanding those fundamentals, again, that she talked about the roots of the gospel, that's what doesn't change. But other things can change in a way that progresses and helps us to learn and, and to grow. And I think that, you know, if we help people understand that, that, you know, the root of things don't change, I think that's a helpful thing for our kids and for everyone around us. Yeah, yeah. definitely. In conclusion, I just want to end with this quote that she shares. 
she says, lose no opportunity to light from your fire of belief the fuse which will ignite in them a spark of testimony, that electric force which will generate in them energy to work for the church, heat to warm them to the gospel, light to illumine their way toward a realization of that highest conception of intelligence as the glory of God. So she's saying, be strong for them and encouraging for them. This is the future of of the church. And I just think that's neat. And I also, I wanted to know, Lisa, from your perspective, why do you think this talk was included in At the Pulpit? Well, because it is so relevant for today. Because when when we read it, I actually was the one that came across this in some other research that I was doing and shared it with the team that was working on the book. And when we read it, it just resonated so much with today's issues. Her voice is so strong and so fresh and the kinds of questions that she's addressing and the answers that she's giving just seemed really relevant as we think about generational issues. Great. Thank you. And we're so lucky to have both of you as our guests today. Thank you, Lisa. And thank you, Katie, for sharing your experiences and your perspectives. And thank you for joining us and listening. Uh, I'm your host, Shaylin Back. 